I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Today, we're joined by Jamie Powell, and she's joining the show. She's the Communications and Outreach Director at the Henry's Fork Foundation. Peter, we're talking rivers again. It's Idaho. It's rivers. Great, right. Idaho. It's always How about rivers. How could we not talk about rivers? Well, we got a lot of water, and the water wants to go somewhere. Right. And well, we want to go to the water. And we want to go to that water. Right. We're going to talk a lot about it, but I bet you have some nature news for us. Yeah. Today, Leaf, we're going to talk about the murky and understudied world of cat play behavior. <laughs> and A serious topic. A serious topic. Cat play and behavior. We might have seen a major breakthrough <laughs> In cats playing fetch. Cats playing fetch. Yes. Okay. I actually have had two cats that did play fetch. I've never had a cat that would play fetch. Yep. Not yep. at all. Totally. So we've got some researchers okay. who put out an online form and about cats. Oh, like cat, survey. Survey, yeah. Okay. About cats and playing and fetch. And they yeah. received 924 individual replies <laughs> about these fe- uh, these cats playing fetch and 94% of those that replied found mm. that the fetching behavior on cats emerged spontaneously without any deliberate training and these cats were usually kittens kittens to about 1 1 and a half years old that started playing fetch and how these cats started doing this is the owners would accidentally or randomly knock something off their table or, or desk, or a cat might have brought them a, a toy and they just tossed it. And the cat runs and grabs it and brings it back to them. Next thing you know, they're playing fetch with this cat. And the truth is, that's how my first cat started to play fetch. Okay. She, was, she was a kitten and she had a very specific Nerf type foam ball that that's the only one that she would play catch with and before i knew it i've spent 30 minutes throwing this ball back and forth with the cat and i'm like ah she can play fetch oh interesting yeah and the thing that's really kind of confusing you know when we look at dogs and dogs fetching you know they assume that it's been a selectively bred behavior especially if you you're a hunting dog and a, a retriever that has roots in the wolf the, the historic grandparents of our domestic dogs. Sure. With, with cats, there's no such There's no, no reason for them to bring things back no, to No, occasionally a okay. cat will bring, you know, a dead animal or something they found <laughs> back to you. Always lovely. But there's no reason as to why. And this study didn't look into why cats fetch. They just looked into that cats they do. occasionally, randomly play fetch. And the most important result with this survey is that they did find out that when it comes down to playing fetch, the cats are the ones that make the decisions on when and how they're going to play fetch. Well, that sounds like a cat. Not us. Yeah. Yeah. Cats are always in charge. Yeah. They're not going to do what you tell them to do. Oh, totally not. So I don't know how much of a breakthrough this actually is, but... How can we apply this in our daily lives? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I had a cat when I was younger who absolutely tough, toughy, and he really liked tinfoil ball. So Mm -hmm. if you rolled up a little tinfoil ball and launched that, that would entertain him for hours, but it would be very rare that he'd bring it back. Yeah. So no fetch. A lot of play, but no fetch. But no fetch, Mm -hmm. yeah. I had a tortoiseshell 
mud that was playing fetch and tortoiseshells are weird cats. And then I had a Siamese. And while I was reading through this article, I had to do some research. And they found out that Siamese and Bengal cats, the Bengal cat breed, are the two most common cats to play fetch. <laughs> so there you go. Gotta love them. You do. They're independent-minded. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah, I love it. Okay. Well, our trivia question today has to do with Henry's Fork. How long is Henry's Fork? I bet you're dying to know. I'm dying to know, too. Me, too. I don't really have a clue. When we come back, we're going to learn a whole lot about Henry's Fork and a whole lot more. Jamie Powell will join us. Stay tuned. continued access to local news and all the programs you enjoy through the Listen Live link at KISU.org or try using your web-connected Amazon or Google smart speaker with the command Play KISU. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome our guest today. It's Jamie Powell. She's the Communications and Outreach Director at the Henry's Fork Foundation First off, thanks for joining us today at The Nature of Idaho. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, I, yeah, communications and outreach. I like to think I have the fun job. I, I think of myself as a translator between the science, the technical information, and the general public, whether it's anglers or the local community, anyone who's interested in the river and the work we do. And I have to say, spending a lifetime in the science field, we definitely need translators. So thank you very much. <laughs> Scientists are getting a lot better at communicating their own stuff. Give them credit, but I let them do the hard work and then I just talk about it. Right on. Well, so let's talk about the Henry's Fork Foundation. What's the mission of the organization? Yeah, the Henry's Fork Foundation came about in the early 80s to protect the river. So a lot of what we do honors that legacy. You know, we try to conserve the wild trout fisheries that have become so popular. You know, people come from across the world to fish this river. And yeah, so we have a lot of different programs to try and really conserve that experience, the health of the river and the fishery, the, the trout that live there. So when we're looking at the fisheries, the trout and the water health, it's just not the river. There's, there's a lot more to this foundation than just specifically the river, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. We, uh, we like to say fish need water. So the water in the river is a big focus, but the fishing experience is also really important. We have a lot of focus on river access, river cleanups. We have education programs, internship programs. There's a lot that goes into it because like you said, yeah, it's more than just the river. It's, it's the whole environment and ecosystem that makes up that watershed. How big is the organization? I'm imagining a number of, as you mentioned, some scientists that are going to be involved. What's, what's it look like? Yeah, we have a really strong science team. We have just shy of 20 employees when you include some of our consultants and part-time folks, but a really strong science program. And then folks like me, the communications team and the fundraising team that support them and make sure that their work can continue. So can you give us some examples of work that's being done there? Absolutely. So I like to think of our work in a couple of different categories. Like I said, fish need water. So water quantity and water quality are two things we really focus on. Make sure that there's enough water in the river for the fish and make sure that that water is of high quality, meaning good temperatures, good clarity, 
So programs from a water quality monitoring network that covers the entire watershed. We have these in-river devices that send real-time data back to the computer to track water temperatures and sediment loads and things like that. But we also have precision water management where we collaborate very closely with partners to ensure that the water that comes out of the reservoir, Island Park Reservoir, and into the river, make sure there's enough water in the river at key times of year. We've got, like I said, internship programs, youth education programs. We do riparian fencing. We do fish passage, any aspect that we could, that we can think of to try and help keep this river healthy. We study aquatic insects very closely. We have a macroinvertebrate program. Yeah, that's a, a short list, but a lot of science-based programs that are also very collaborative. That's very important to us working with partners. Can I dig in a little bit about what the trout are needing in their environment? So you mentioned things like water clarity and temperature. Could you, let's dig into that a little more. So um, for healthy trout populations, what's an ideal river system for them? And, and what does that look like through the year? That's a really good question. It's different in different places and depending on the trout species that you're looking at maybe. But in our system, in our little corner of Idaho, trout want that good, cold, clear water. But we're unique in the sense that we have what we call a working river. We've got reservoirs and all of the water in that river is owned and managed by farmers and irrigators. And then the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation controls the reservoir. So we're working within a very sort of unique system there. We're not some high mountain alpine stream. We're a river that has a lot going on and a lot of human impact. But in a lot of ways, that actually makes the fishing experience even better. So a lot of the work we do has to do with working with those farmers and working with the federal agencies to make sure that there's enough water in the river for those fish when they need it. So with all these projects going on, this might be a loaded question. What's the one area that you really get excited as a communications and outreach director? If I say something, what's that bit that you're going to go, oh, my gosh, this is I got to tell you this story. Yeah, that I think is the story of how we don't necessarily fit the mold. We, at least I, when when you think of an environmental organization, I'm doing some air quotes, or a conservation organization, a picture comes into your mind that, and I don't think we fit that typical picture. We worked very hard and have learned over the course of our sort of 40 year history that we are going to get a lot farther by working together with the other stakeholders in our watershed. So, you know, because I said like the water is owned by the local farmers and irrigators, that tends to bring up this sort of feeling of, oh, it must be farms versus fish, this sort of battling mentality or you have an enemy here because we both want to use this water and we we both have investment in how that river is going to look. But what we learned is when you actually sit down and get to know people on a person to person level, it turns out we have a lot more in common than we might originally think. These farmers want a healthy river and water in that river for future generations. They hope to pass that farm down to their sons and grandsons and granddaughters. We both want the same thing. We just don't necessarily speak the same language. We don't use the same words to describe it. So until you really get to know a person or an organization and the people in that organization, you might not realize that. And so we have achieved some really, really cool stuff through a farms and fish program and a precision water management program that works directly with local farmers and irrigators to save water and to keep that river healthy. 
Right. This is perfect because I think a lot of the challenges that we face, there are so many different stakeholders, uh, human stakeholders, economic drivers, and then the wildlife themselves that are all trying to use the same resource, right? And sometimes there are competing, or at least it feels like there are competing interests or the actions of one affects the other. And I think it's obviously really wise to try to find the compromises so that everybody gets hopefully what they're wanting to get out of a system. You talked about farmers, farmers and fish is the name of the program. Is farms and fish. Farms and fish. What are some of the, the balances there that are uh, specific to that project? Yeah, so the, the Farms and Fish program it is sort of covers the whole watershed, which includes the Teton River. So there's a lot of different partners in there. It's, you know, Trout Unlimited, Friends of the Teton River, ourselves, the Nature Conservancy, all sort of our partners on this with the local irrigators and farmers. We work with farmers on a voluntary basis to conserve water, whether that means changes in crop rotation or soil health initiatives shifting the use when they're using the water so that it stays in the river, maybe in the heat of the summer when the trout need some extra water, or shifting the type of crop you plant that uses a little less water, but making sure that that works for the farmer's bottom line. It has to, you know, it has to be a benefit and a win-win on both sides. A lot of it has to do with timing and making sure that everyone is getting the water that they need when they need it and still making a living and making sure that that farm can stay productive and in the family and successful the same way that a fisherman wants a, a good fishing day. So as we've been experiencing various changes in our climate and snowpack, has the discussion and the conversations become more difficult? Because I think we're now, especially here in the West, we're learning and realizing that water is a limiting resource. Absolutely. I think the nice thing is, and the nice thing, that's sort of a weird way to say it, but we are all in the same boat. So I think it has actually increased our motivation to work together, knowing that we can achieve more that way. So I mentioned our precision water management program. We've saved 25,000 acre feet of water. So an acre foot is if you picture one foot of water deep on a football field, 25,000 acre feet of water in our local reservoir which not only benefits the farmers, but for us, that means more flow is able to come out in the winter, more trout survive the winter, and those populations increase. So having that as a possibility, knowing that that's something that we can achieve, that we can make a real measurable difference in mitigating some of these drought effects, these effects of a changing climate, gives us a lot of hope and something to sort of strive for thinking, okay, maybe we can have a positive impact here. How variable, I guess, because this waterway is managed by a variety of entities, but fundamentally, I guess the Bureau of Reclamation has a, a big say in, in water levels in any of the reservoirs and, and timings of the year when it's drawn down and so forth. How, I guess, volatile is the water level and water quality year to year based on snowpack? That's a really good question. It is very much dependent on snowpack. So our system, the Henry Swark really truly starts at Big Springs as the name of the spring. That spring has sort of a, it has a really long cycle, but in essence, the snow that falls on the Yellowstone Plateau is going to sink in, become part of groundwater, sink into the aquifer. 
and it's going to come out maybe a hundred years later. But for the purposes of how our water is managed and thought about, it's about a three-year cycle. So if we have a poor snow year, three years later, we're going to see some really negative effects from that. We're going to see lower water available to work with flowing into that reservoir and what we can work with to come out. So there's something called the Drought Management Planning Committee. Every fall, right ahead of the winter, they all sit down. That's the farmers, that's some of the NGOs like ourselves and the Nature Conservancy and the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, like you said, they all sit down and talk about, you know, we sort of bring the data. We've got our science program and our science team who say, okay, here's what the data says the water we have to work with, what that's going to look like if you did, you know, this plan of outflow that's going to allow the reservoir to fill this quickly. The Bureau of Reclamation shares their goals and what they want to see because it's really their decision. And then they are listening to the farmers because the farmers do have those water rights. And so all of those pieces get incorporated and accounted for. But they do have that opportunity to sit down ahead of the winter and say, okay, this is how we want to manage the water, knowing how much we have to work with based on the winter. That's going to change as of April 1st as we watch that snow build. And then they meet again in the spring and on April 1st, sit down and say, okay, here's what we can do based on the snow that we received. So it's really nice to be able to have both that data to compare historically, how's that changing, what can we do with it to meet as many people's needs and goals as possible. The, the Bureau of Reclamation and the irrigators both have been wonderful to work with. You know, I, I look at all the data, all the information that you and other NGOs and the Bureau of Reclamation and even the farmers and ranchers are collecting, and to me, the most important component is that communication that you guys all sit down and go, here's the data. And it's not like you're going, well, we can't do this or we can't do that. It's what do we as an entire group of people need to, to get through this upcoming spring, summer, fall. And you work to find solutions that benefit all. Yeah, it's a really special situation because, you know, the Bureau and the farmers, they don't need to listen to us. It's their water. They can do whatever they'd like. But I think the effort that, you know, the folks who've worked for the Henry Ford Foundation before me, the folks who came before, really spent in the last 30 years taking the time to get to know these other folks and vice versa. They got to know us. They sat down with us. They built these relationships so that they could trust not only do we have the capability, we know what we're talking about, we can bring you good data, but we're not going to just advocate for ourselves and you don't matter. You know, they trust that we're looking for win-win solutions across the board. Um, so I think it's really unique and really special that, that that history and that relationship building has got us to the point where we can make a real difference and actually find win-win solutions, which is not always easy to do. Let's talk about the animals that are in the water. So we've got trout of different varieties, right? And other fish. Uh, go ahead. You got. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about people coming from across the world to come fish here, they're really excited about rainbow trout and brown trout. Those are the yep. fish that grow big and they're fun when you try and catch them um, and they're smart. But we also have, you know, brook trout. We have some of the natives are mountain whitefish. We also have mottled sculpin. I mean, there's there's a ton, but the 
sort of famous fish are those rainbow trout and brown trout. They're beautiful to look at. They grow big. They're fun to catch. And they, they're really the, the hallmark of this fishery. I'm kind of chuckling because, of course, we have to go to the trout, the mega vertebrates. But, <laughs> but when, you, when you think about trout and browns, and all, they eat insects. And so we have to look at our insect assemblage, right? If we don't have the food to help these fish grow big, then it doesn't serve a whole lot of purpose. So what's, what's, Jamie, what's the choice food of a trout? Yeah. That's yeah. That's a the insects don't get enough credit, and the hatches on the Henry's fork are are very popular too. So salmon flies, mayflies, caddis flies, those are the king three that everyone thinks about and that the trout love. You know, whether you think about a a cheeseburger for a trout, that's maybe a big salmon fly. <laughs> they love to eat those. What do these guys need to grow up big and healthy and become future food? They need a productive system, and we are, we're lucky that we have that. Lots of insect activity. You'll see lots of aquatic plants growing, a good balance of nutrients in the river to grow that plant food that the insects can then eat, and then the trout can eat the insects. And having a productive system is something that we are lucky to have, and, and that's why you see those football-sized-shaped fish on the end of your line when you go fishing. And the coastline, the riparian uh, ecosystem along the, uh, the the shoreline, is that part of your management as well or, or oversight? Yeah, in certain places. So the upper half of the river, we'll say, is primarily surrounded by forest land, national forest, and the lower half is more private with farmland and agriculture. But that's a key part of the ecosystem, absolutely. So there are places where canyon-like, and then there's places where it's flat and you might have willows and grass on the side. In general, I'd say we're pretty lucky that that system is really healthy, but where it's not, we have restoration programs, we have fencing that sort of just keeps the cattle from trampling down some of the edges. And But, but a lot of that was started, you know, 40 years ago when the foundation was started. And so we're very lucky that that riparian ecosystem is healthy and in great shape. That's great. And it's, it happens to be in a really stunningly beautiful part of the world. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> Very photogenic. That's right. Okay. So we've covered who's living in the water. We've covered a little bit about the banks. We've talked about the human interests of, I guess, competing interests to some degree on, on how those resources. What's our future look like? As an organization, what do you imagine is going to be the focus of attention maybe uh, as it shifts in the next 10 or even 20 years down the line? With changing climate, with drought, those challenges are going to shape the next decade or so, I think. We are tracking water temperatures closely. We are really studying Island Park Reservoir because all the data we have over the last you know, 30, 40 years is telling us that that is the crux of this fishery especially because it's something that is managed. You can let out more water, you can let out less water. All of these things are going to play a, a really important role. So I think like a lot of the West, water is and is going to continue to be a very crucial resource. And how we manage that, how we take care of this river is going to come down to, to how we use that water. So continuing those partnerships, like I mentioned, farms and fish, continuing to be precise in our water management, that precision water management program, 
and building strong relationships with the people who do get to make those decisions, the water managers and the water users, because that's not us. We use the resource and we use the water, but we don't make decisions. We don't have the authority to make those kind of decisions. Um, so if that fishery is important to us, we need to continue to get to know and better understand and work with the people who make these crucial decisions for the future of our water. And Jamie, I think you've said it over and over again, and you're absolutely right. It's with the communication. We there, There's always common ground in our local issues, especially when it comes down to the environment. And being able to communicate what the data says, what the needs are, what the wants are, and always finding that common ground because it's there. You're going to have a much better success rate, a longer and a healthier and more sustaining river. So thank you for what you do and what Henry's Forks Foundation does. Thank you. Well, we have a trivia question for you. I bet you know the answer to it. Uh, how long is Henry's Fork? I hope I know the answer. <laughs> uh, that, the Henry's Fork is right about 110 river miles. And can folks use the whole 110 miles or are there areas that, you know, just access is limiting? They can. We are really lucky in Idaho to have a lot of access points. I mean, almost 50 if, if I'm remembering correctly. So lots of chances to access the river. Right. On. This is great. And thank you, Jamie, for taking some time with us today. And we really appreciate uh, your conversation with us. And for folks who want to learn more about Henry Forks Foundation, please um, go to henrysforkfoundation.org. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at Idaho State University with editing and production by Khalees Kendall and Jamin Anderson. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noidkisu at isu.edu.